FTI's Financial Services Podcast. FTI is a global advisory firm. We help organizations manage change, mitigate risk, and resolve disputes. I'm your host, Tilsia Toledo. I have over 25 years of experience in the financial services industry. This show is about the people I've met along the way and leading during uncertain times. You will hear from finance executives, law firm partners, dedicated government professionals, and many others. Today's guest is Melvin Kirk. Mel is a senior technology and operations executive. He has a track record of transforming or completely reimagining business operations to deliver record-setting outcomes in services and manufacturing operations at multiple global businesses. Most recently, he was the Chief Technology Officer at Rider Systems, Inc. During today's episode, he offers great insights about leadership transformation and negotiating to create win-win situations. Mel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Like me, you have an engineering degree. Tell me a little bit about what was the attraction to engineering? How did you end up using that field for your studies? The attraction to engineering really came in junior high school. I was involved in a STEM program. It wasn't called STEM at the time, but that fundamentally, that's what it was. Me and about 12, 13 other students spent the summer meeting engineers at the universities in the area. So Georgia Tech, Clemson, a couple of others, and then we visited several industrial facilities, Savannah River nuclear plant, a Westinghouse plant, and heard about what different types of engineers do, what their education was, and so forth. And up until that point, I hadn't even really thought about the academic direction I would take. I was playing sports. That was where my focus was. But after going through that program, I was sold on the engineering and I was selected for it because of math and science grades and so forth. So after that program and meeting students and professionals, I was like, I want to be an engineer. Listen, I think very fondly of my engineering degree because like I was very much into math and science. It's really math. Math for me was uh, what really drew me to engineering. I like the fact that there's an answer. And I also did several STEM programs back in my day, which opened up my eyes. And so I think part of what you're talking about is just the importance of exposure. Yeah, definitely was that. You know, there's nobody around me in the neighborhood or beyond the teachers that could have even gotten me to start thinking along those lines. So going through that program was a godsend and it came at the right time. I was open and receptive to it. And from there, I was on fire. I knew I wanted to go to college versus other options. I didn't know how up until that point, I was always thinking like almost every other boy in the neighborhood was going to get some sports scholarship. But from there, I was dual focused. I had the sports interest that I continued to work on. And then I really started doing research on engineers and the different types of engineers. So from that point, it was really what type versus will you be one? And then from there, it was what schools. And I think the interesting path that you took is that you ended up sticking with it in some regards, getting into operations and technology and which now touches every single aspect of our lives. And so I wanted to talk a little bit more about how did you end up getting into the whole technology and operations field? When I met you, we were already at GE, right? So I was at GE Capital and I was more focused on banking and I was doing capital markets and you were in a different area. But again, thank God for the conglomerate of GE, we were able to meet. 
my career has been two halves, right? Two parts. When I made the decision to go to the University of Tennessee, I had in my head, based on what I had seen in that pro that summer program, I wanted to be an industrial engineer and I was going to graduate and I was going to go back and work in a production facility for the next 40 years. I was going to run a plant in central South Georgia somewhere. And my focus for the first eight years of my career was around building towards a manufacturing operations plant management type of role. So probably about two years before we met at GE, my stepfather passed away. At the time, I was in Minneapolis, Minnesota with General Mills, my first general. And my wife and I made a decision to move back to Georgia or to move closer to my mom. And that meant, you know, the best place was Atlanta. But for an industrial engineer, there's not a lot of production facilities, not large ones anyway, in and around Atlanta that I could grow the next 20 years. And so I made a conscious choice to move from manufacturing operations to services operations. And that's how I ended up at General Electric. At that time, Jack Welch, former CEO of GE, was driving Six Sigma throughout the financial services companies. And... I happened along at a career fair and a lady interviewed me and we talked about implementing Six Sigma in a service company and a financial services company, which I had actually done in my graduate studies. Wow. And so they hired me as a master black belt in one of the areas that they were trying to drive. And that was really the start of my transition from manufacturing operations to services operations. And the next 20 years, whether it was GE and on to writer, I was focused on service execution and how do you improve that? And whether you're talking about service execution or manufacturing execution and operations, you have to talk about three things, process, people, and technology, right? That's cornerstone of an industrial engineer anyway. And so the early parts of my career, I was focused on the people and process. We weren't spending a lot of money on technology, but the greater responsibility I gained across the different companies, I got more and more pulled into technology up until this last role that I've had with Ryder, which is chief technology. Really the last two roles at Ryder was chief information officer and then chief technology officer purely focused on forward-looking technologies and integrating new technologies into the company to create new platforms of business. So I've evolved personally and professionally from that little kid that wanted to just run a plant to somebody now that really is thinking about how to use technology to make operations better or to create new ones. And so I want to talk a little bit about the leadership aspects. The line is never straight. So I'm curious about what is the best career advice that you've received when you look back? The longest standing and best advice that I've gotten in my career actually came when I was a second term co-op student while I was getting my degree at UT. So I was having lunch with my boss, the director of industrial engineering and the finance director for this plant that I was in, that I was working in. And we were at lunch and I'm not even sure why they started coaching me. My direct boss said, Mel, I'm going to give you some advice. When you start looking for jobs and you start negotiating for jobs, nobody's ever going to give you exactly what you think you're worth. They're not just going to walk up and say, here, you're worth a million dollars and give it to you. You're going to have to debate and negotiate for it. And you may not get to where you think you should be. 
But if you really want the job, you have to navigate yourself through that discussion to a place that you're comfortable accepting the job with the compensation and whatever perks that comes along. And then leave that. Once you sign the paper, leave that at that point and focus on doing the job. So his point was, don't go into a job thinking money and they didn't give me enough. Fight for what you want up front, negotiate tough, then forget about the money and focus on the work. And that's basically what I've done all of my career. The second piece of advice at that same lunch was the finance director said, and Mel, when you start making money, pay for everything you possibly can with cash. Credit is not your friend. (laughs) And he said, I didn't understand it at the time, but he said, establish for yourself a personal hurdle rate for how much interest you're going to pay if you do use credit and don't go over it. I hadn't talked about financial management and budgeting with my family, parents, or anybody at that point. So those pieces of information have stayed with me throughout my career. And especially the part about the negotiation, because what I've experienced over the years is that when you're in a role and you're doing the work and you go to lunch or you have things with your friends, there's always some consternation about pay. And I never get into that. I accept a job and then I go do the job. And by focusing on that, I've always done pretty well in terms of executing the work. What has evolved over the years, though, is what I negotiate for changed. So early in my career, I was negotiating for cash and right, so for salary and for you know the financial perks of the job. Later, especially when I had a fa- started to have a family. I would then integrate things like vacation time and other ancillary things that I could get. Later in my career, in the executive stage of my career, after I got past the hurdle of the financial compensation, I started asking for elements that weren't a given in the role that I needed to be successful. Can you give us an example? What do you mean? Yeah. So when I took the role... I'm going to give you a couple of examples. I took a role with General Electric. One of the big roles that I took with General Electric was transition leader to move the energy services business from New York down to Atlanta. They said, our charter with this is make sure as we're moving the business, we're re-engineering the business processes. So part of the job was to re-engineer the business processes. The second part of the job was to do the physical build out of the building and the HR relocation of people from New York to Atlanta and then hiring new people. As I was thinking about the role, I was like, man, everything that I do in this role is going to be a point of conflict with the people that I interact with, right? Because some people would have big offices in New York when they got to Atlanta, they weren't going to get the big office. Or if I was- I'm going from New York to Atlanta, I'm expecting an even bigger office. (laughs) At the time, we started the project with 500 people transitioning in mind. And then once they saw that the CEO, the divisional president was coming, that number grew to 2000. So that's why they didn't get to have these offices. The other part, because I was in charge of re-engineering business processes, I was going to be changing processes. Yes. And change is always a challenge. It's always a challenge. So what I asked for in that job, I said, hey, I'll do the job. But I want to have the charter to build the culture in Atlanta. And why that was important, I was asking for a budget that would allow me to do fun stuff, right? To work with the Chamber of Commerce in the city of Atlanta to create events, whether it's going to a Braves game or a Falcons game or something 
that would be a positive point of engagement for me with the people that were coming to Atlanta, right? That I wasn't always in a point of conflict, right? I was creating some fun and some culture and so forth. Because I had done re-engineering work before my career was about change, is about change, I knew I was going to be just heads over heels in conflict all the time. And so that was important to me. And they said, yes, and we did it. When I got to Writer, when I came over to Writer, I was, again, coming into an 80-year-old company that has a lot of heritage to it. And once I was comfortable with the role and the money, what I asked for was, I said, I'd like to have one, before I say yes to anything, I want to speak with the director of diversity. I heard what the executive team told me they were doing. I wanted to talk to them direct, the diversity manager directly about what types of programs and things that they were doing relative to expanding diversity in the organization. Because for me at that stage of my career, it was very important for me to be able to give back. Did they have one? Because I mean, depending on what year you're talking about, they may not have had a director of diversity. They had one. They were shocked that I asked the diversity manager when he talked to me, he was so happy that I asked, right? Because it elevated the importance of him and his role to that executive team. I didn't want to be a face in the room. I wanted to be a voice at the table and I wanted my voice to carry as it related to diversity matters. The other thing that I asked for in addition to that with Ryder was I wanted two diverse mentees. And I was asking for the diverse mentees because again, I was being introduced to the company as somebody that was going to come in and change the organization in a variety of ways. And I asked for the first person to be diverse talent, mid-career, but legacy writer, somebody that had been here 20, 20 plus years. They know the lay of the land. They can tell me where the pitfalls are. I could call them after a trip to some one of our facilities and say, okay, now what are they saying about me, right? And then the second person was mid-career in that senior director, group director role where they were transient into the company. And then I could talk to them about the challenges they had coming into the company so that I wouldn't fall into these pitfalls of coming in with the expressed charter of driving change and all I get was Stonewall because it's a legacy company, right? And people are there 40 years plus, and it's a badge of honor to be there. So those things helped me. And those are soft types of things that I asked for. That was more about, it was less about compensation. It was more about building a pathway to success. So I want to pull that thread a little bit more. Naturally, you know, this podcast is about finance and leadership. And as an executive, you have so many great leadership lessons. And I jotted down what you said, that you wanted to not just be a face in the room, but a voice at the table. So talk a little bit about what are the things that people should be asking for that they're not asking for? You've given us a couple of examples, but I'm curious about how to make sure that our voices are heard, that we ask for the things that we maybe don't even think are possible. If there are other examples that you think would be helpful, talk to us a little bit about how do we make sure that our voices are heard at the table? Yeah, I think for me, as I think about it, from the point that I was, let me go back for a second. Both my undergraduate and graduate education was funded through scholarships or fellowships. So other people that did not know me reached out and created an opportunity for me. So it's been very important for me 
to give back and have the ability to give back through the organization that I work with throughout my career. And so as I've evaluated companies and talked to people about coming onto organizations, I've tried to thread through to understand whether or not what they were doing was real and intentional or just for show. And I've learned the differences over time. And so in that area, plus in other areas, every time I get into looking into a role, I think about what I will need to be a whole productive talent in that role, right? What gives me the best opportunity to be successful? And what you saw me talk about with both of those was I was strategically asking for relief valves because I know the pressure and the stress of the leadership roles the further you go. And so the other thing that Ryder and I you know, worked on was charter for me personally, from a charitable standpoint, is focused on education and the health and welfare of women and kids. And so I've been focused both at GE and Ryder on the United Way. And those are things that I explicitly asked for. So I've always thought about the things that are important for me, one, to do the job, two, to be healthy and whole mentally and emotional when I'm doing the job and taking on the stress of the job. So I get nourishment from big brothers, big sisters, or uh, these other programs. So I ask about engaging in those. And then when I was transitioning between companies, vacation time was very important to me because you earn it to a certain level, you change companies, and then you're obligated to the vacation profile of the new company, which may be worse. And so I always try to level set that vacation so that I'm not losing it as I'm moving from one place to the other. I've always told people when they've called me for career advice to sit down and write out the things that are important to you as you take on the role. Why are you doing it? What is it that you're looking to get development on? What are you looking to build as a skill set? And if they're not inherently in the job, then ask for them to be added to the job. Beyond that, then it's the supplemental stuff that I've mentioned. When I took on the role in GE's Homeland Protection business, the charter there was to go to this new, newly acquired set of businesses and resurrect the services business unit. When they were talking to me about the role, it was in the late July, August timeframe. And so as we got to settling in on, I was the guy and I was interested in it and we got the numbers straight and all of that. The last thing that I asked for, and I asked for this, not at the business unit level, I asked for this at the corporate headquarters level. I said, okay, I'll take the job, but I know we're rolling into the fourth quarter, the end of the third quarter and into the fourth quarter. Historically, we're a cost-driven company. We're going to start cutting TNL. If I'm going to do this job, I need to be able to go right off the bat and see my customers without fail right? That means I'm going to be in Germany. I'm going to be in Paris. I'm going to be in China, so forth. I don't want anybody calling me and saying, Mel, TNL's cut. You can't go because I'm trying to turn around the unit. So I got them to agree right up front that I was going to be grandfathered off of any reductions in TNL for the rest of that year. And I did. And they they stood to it. I Fairfield called the business unit and said, he's traveling. He needs that to do the job. And so my peers in the business unit, it was looking at me sideways, right? They're having to not go to sales meetings and all these other things, but I was going to meet customers. But Tosia, the other side of it was that I asked for that. I thought it was a function of, it was an attribute that was needed or an element that was needed to be successful to turn around the business, both for the company and for me. 
And we did it. They granted it. And then it was my job to perform. And so we did. And we turned the business around. And now as I'm listening to you, I'm hearing a negotiations masterclass. You're thinking very strategically about what's going to make you successful in the role and what's going to make the organization successful because you're creating win-win opportunities. What I'm curious about is when you do make a move from one role to another, you talked about the various different places where you've worked. How is it that you think about your roles? Like when you're going from one to the other, and how do you think about roles in your career progression? I've always thought about my second or third role out of undergrad I jumped off of the traditional career ladder. I took an environmental engineering role and the industrial engineering leadership team was like, what, what are you doing? And what I thought about in taking that role was, look, I'm saying I want to be a plant manager, a divisional business unit, operations business unit leader. And to do that, I need to know more than just how to optimize a production line. I need to understand wastewater and environmental regulations, and I need to understand financials better. And I need to, so I started to think about my career development myself as a toolbox that I needed to load, right, with the right tools. And I excuse myself away from the traditional ladder to build that toolkit because I felt like I needed two things. I needed challenge and stretch and the expansion of my mind, if you will. And I also needed the buildup of those skills that I articulated or thought about. And so I didn't think I could get that by just being a manager and a senior manager in a very vertically associated area. And so once I started taking these non-traditional roles and started to see wow, man, it's pretty cool when you can look at the world from this chair, this chair, which is different from the chair that I was in and the chair that I was going to get developed in, then that to me was like a drug. It was like, okay, what else can I do that's different, but additive to the goal. So I've always kept the end goal in mind, the end goal change, right? From a production manager to a CEO of a business unit or a CEO of a company. And so as I've changed over time, I've continued to look at job descriptions and talk to folks in executive roles and say, okay, what are the skills and tools and experiences that you need? And I just keep a checklist of the things that I feel like I need to build there. And I have been less focused on the order of getting there, but more focused on the accumulation of the skills. And so that's why when you look at my career and the moves that I've made, they are building roles, building toward that executive senior executive level, but it's not something someone else would have crafted. What I'm wondering is, clearly you were having conversations. So can you talk about what influences you had from others that's related to when you were considering making move A versus staying in B? Tell us a little bit about some insight about that. So most of the jobs that I've taken have been special projects or turnarounds, things that people that care about me told me not to do. It's stressful. Yeah. You talked about the fact that, you know, what you're introducing change and there's going to be some assistance to that change. The third part, though, is that when you're successful, everybody's like, I got it. A number of the roles that I took, I probably got more advice of, are you sure you're sure? So the way that I looked at it was what was going to excite me from one day to the next 
And it was the challenge of solving that Rubik's cube that everybody else was running away from. Every job that I've taken, I look at it and say, okay, what does it take to be successful? And that's where I use some of the mentors and sponsors and so forth to bounce the ideas around. What is it going to take from an execution standpoint to be successful? And then also, what is it going to take from a perception management standpoint to be successful, right? It's more than just the execution. It's, will people see you executing? And I'm introverted by nature. And so some of these roles meant that I was going to have to be very loud, you know, above and beyond my personality. But I went into those eyes wide open. So I talk about those two things. The other thing that I would evaluate is what's the benefit of success? And then what's the risk of failure? I'm going to focus on the risk side because most people choose not to do them because of the risk side. And so oftentimes what I would end up saying is, okay, if I take this job in Homeland Protection, right, I move away from one of the mothership divisions in GE and I go to this acquired business segment and I do everything I possibly can and we just don't turn it around. It's a flop. Can I sell the effort? Can I take what I tried and the learnings from the failure and articulate that in the marketplace and still sell myself into a new opportunity? And when I looked at all of these jobs, I said, yeah, sure I can, right? I mean, if anybody can talk about it, I can, right? <laughs> I've been honest about it, thinking about the things I was going to have to try to do to get it to work. I'm always honest with myself about Okay, that didn't work. Okay, and then it's, what do you learn from that miss? And then if you're a continuous improvement person, just because you failed doesn't mean it's over. It means you got to try something different. You got to pivot, right? So I've got that personality and mindset. I always evaluate the risk. I always evaluate the downside of the risk, but I also evaluate, but man, if I pull it off, the sky's the limit, right? I always come back to, if I could sell the downside, if I could sell that, then it's worth trying. And I think that's such a great way to look at it because a lot of times people don't think that far, especially if nobody expected for it to do well anyway. And I think a lot of times people don't think about that. And also the skills that you picked up and you learned along the way, the people that you had exposure to, because you took on that special project and things like that. I totally agree. When you get into larger companies and you get these larger roles, the more important the business unit is to the organization, the more help you get, right? From corporate and others. Everybody's got a voice on, hey, you should do it this way, do it this way. But when you take something that stinks really bad and has the risk of huge failure, nobody bothers you. You truly get to go manage and lead and learn. When I first take one of those ugly jobs, then folks are like so far away, right? They're like in the next county, right? <laughs> in terms of being supported, not so much supportive, but being... They don't want the stench on them if it goes wrong. They don't want to be associated Uh, with it. They may help you in the background. They'll help me silently in the background. But as the turn happens, (laughs) they move from the two counties over. Now they're in the city. (laughs) So I really enjoy the challenge of being it being me and my team and us taking an honest swing and learning from the swings and pivoting, making a new swing. And seeing the results. And uh, fortunately for me, all the ones I've taken on, we've turned around, we've accomplished what the goals were. So let's talk a little bit about your leadership style. 
Mm-hmm. But especially for the kind of projects and assignments and roles that you've had where it's a turnaround situation, how would you describe your leadership style and has it changed over time? I always say I'm a listen first leader. And I know a lot of people say, hey, you're supposed to listen. I know a lot of people talk about listening, but don't. I'm an active listener because I started as somebody that was looking at the very lowest level of business processes and trying to figure out how to change those. So I grew up from a career standpoint, working with union employees on production lines, and I couldn't go into those facilities and just say, hey, I'm a smart kid from the University of Tennessee, and I'm going to change this. I had to engage them on a personal level, lower the temperature of the threat of this kid out of high school coming to tell us what to do, and at least give them the honest view that I would listen. I may not agree, and the solution may not be what they were expecting, but I could always guarantee that it was going to be the changes that I was not going to make had nothing to do with politics or whether or not I liked somebody. It was purely around the math and the calculus associated with trying to make the process run better. And it had no personality in it at all. And that's been the case for me throughout my career is that because I've been introduced into almost every job and organization I've been in as the guy that's coming to change your world, I've gone in very humble with my ears first and let people get to know me on a personal level. Again, as an introvert, I've made myself comfortable with it over over the years in terms of allowing people to see me on a personal level. But I learned early on that I needed to do that to help people see who I was and trust me. And then from there, it's, I think you could see that I'm in it because I just enjoy what I do. So from a leadership standpoint, when I have authoritative leadership or positional power, I try to give very clear and consistent messaging around where we're going every day, every week. There's no inconsistency, right? Even when there's a downturn in the business, the construct of what I'm saying is still true and consistent. It's just, you got to pivot because there's a circumstantial, a macroeconomic difference, right? And the consistency of messaging for me has been important throughout my career. And I saw some of folks like John Rice at GE was somebody that stuck out to me that I saw him at a African-American forum meeting saying one thing to that audience about what we we're going to do relative to diversity and about growing the business and so forth and so on. And then I was in a leadership a training class with him and he said the exact same thing. And then I was in a new hire program with him somewhere else and he said the exact same thing. And that always stuck out to me that he was not coddling to the people in the room as much as he was expressing a consistency of voice throughout. It stuck out to me and I've certainly tried to follow that. I believe in letting the voices in the room be a part of the conversation, even if I'm the senior person in the room, the smartest person on, on on that topic in the room, you'll never know it. I don't project it. I allow the team and the room to work on things. And so that's been that collaborative nature of leading teams has been central to what I've done. I see the through line to the successes. So I continue to do it. So out of curiosity, just because I know you've been in so many different team settings, do you do in situations where there's dysfunction in the team? Can you walk us through an example of what that's like? Yes. So we've got several examples of that. A lot of times when when an organization is not performing, it's in part because of dysfunction, right? And to me, dysfunction is an extension of inconsistent messaging and leadership in, in part, right? And so you are allowing things to fester or you're allowing people to have 
individual areas of focus or things that are not aligned with, with the mission of the team and so forth. And so what I've always tried to do is to lay out with my leadership team first, the mission of the team, and then we collectively build the charter that we're going to execute to drive from. And then I slowly cascade that throughout the organization. But I give the organization an opportunity to dialogue on it early on. And then as a person that has been involved in change, you're always going to have that bifurcation of you're going to have a group of people that are, hey, I'm with you. Love the idea of change. Then you're going to have that group that's intransient. They don't want to change anything. And then you got the folks that are wait and see non-committal and wait and see. And so my objective is always to try to speed along the wait and seers and then to try to very quickly discern whether or not those intransients have some real rooted issue that needs to be addressed that we can address so that we could bring them along. But ultimately you do get to a point where there's a portion of them that you can't bring along and you got to take them out and move them to a different or part of the organization or out of the organization altogether. But for me, it's never Again, not personal. It's, we got a mission. I've been very clear about it. I have historically tried to do everything possible to make you want to participate and want to move in the direction that we're going. And if you self-select out, then we have to do the disposition, which I'm okay with. I said early in my career, I've never fired anybody. They fired themselves, but I have had to execute the process. That's an interesting perspective. I've never thought about it that way. Give them a shot. So Mel, as we are almost winding down, but I think we have a little bit more time left, I definitely want to touch on the fundamental belief that I have, which is that leaders are readers. Are there any specific books that you recommend, gifted often, referred to on a regular basis, especially anything that has helped you form your leadership style? Early in my career, it was books like Who Moved My Cheese and Never Wrestle With a Pig, things that were about driving change in an organization and moving people off of paradigms that are real or, or imagined. A mid part of my career, when I was starting to move into managerial roles in particular, and it was more important for me to start to project a voice and deliver a message, I focused in on presentation skills types of things where I can see you naked was one of the books that I would always use. I got a book around that same period that was focused on, I don't know the title of it. It's a book of sayings or phrases or things that I could interject into my presentations and so forth and quotes and voices from different types of people from Will Rogers to Martin Luther King to whomever. And then I got into a phase as I was really trying to hone in on improving my own performance. It wasn't this organic. I'm looking back reflectively and thinking about how I got there, but I got into this period where I was reading biographies. I read Days of Grace, Arthur Ashe, and Muhammad Ali's bio. And I read Michael Johnson after the Olympics, the sprinter. I read his book, which was really cool because he was talking about certainly his journey to that point. But then he had the Olympics prior to Atlanta that he they were expecting him to win big and he didn't. And then all the work that he put in that created those magical moments in Atlanta with the gold shoes and him winning, I don't know, four or five gold medals. And so... It was the excellence of all those folks and the work that they put in and the struggles they went through to get to the levels of achievement that they did. I think over the last couple of years, things like Cracking the Code, from a technology standpoint, I, there's a book called Digital to the Core, which is focused on how do you transform a legacy organization into a digital one and so forth. So it's evolved based on where I was in my journey. 
but I do love reading. Now I'm semi-retired, so now I'm back to comic books, The Amazing Spider-Man. <laughs> well, look, I mean, you've given me a nice little list here. Some of them I knew, some of them I did not know. I'm just curious because, again, we're more than just professionals in work, and you and I have also spent time outside of work. So I'm curious about what are you passionate about? You're semi-retired. What are you passionate about? It goes back to the earlier thing that I mentioned, right? I'm a byproduct of the efforts of so many other people, both in time and treasure. And so for me, it's really just about continuing to give back. And so I've, over the last couple of years, while I've been away from work, have still been trying to find ways to impact folks that are trying to grow their careers and lend my voice. I mean, even doing podcasts and so forth is one of the ways that I see that I can continue to make a contribution very directly. When I think about getting involved with big brothers, big sisters, and even some of the programs within the United Way, those things stick out because every time I see, you know, get a chance to meet one of these 13, 14, 15 year olds from the inner city and where I'm at in my life and career to know how punitive one untimely mistake is to a life and to a career, things like big brothers, big sisters is so important because if there isn't the structure at home or in the community to help these kids, man, it's just one wrong move and you're locked out of a big part of the of the industrial community. You won't be able to make the type of money that you need to sustain a family, to have a charmed life and all these things because you've got a felony from some inopportune decision that you made when you were 13, 14, 15 years old. And it haunts me and it drives me. I also think about from the standpoint of driving somebody, yeah. is that I also think about how a kind word or a, or a kind gesture can stay with you. I mean, I think about the teachers that I had yeah. in school who noticed that I was good in math and science, which is why I was into engineering, which then became right. why I went to business school in finance. And I think about even ATA that I had that was like, Tilsey, you should really go into banking. You're so good at this. You should go into banking. I didn't know yeah. anybody who had been like a banker. I think for a moment, my family may have thought that I was a teller. There's nothing wrong with being a teller, but that wasn't what I was doing. And it goes back to exposure yeah. and just kids being able to see various different people in various different roles. And I also think that nowadays, it's the options are so vast. Are so vast, yeah. And with technology, also yeah. on top of that, the options are just so vast compared to just a handful of potential things that you could do. Exactly what you just said, right, is it's the power of suggestion, right? Those teachers suggesting it, those teachers suggesting that we be involved in those STEM programs led to us taking these journeys that we're on now. Every day I salute the folks that stepped in on, on my behalf and try to honor them, pay it forward. There you yeah. go. We are almost at our time. Is there anything I haven't covered that you would like to share with our listeners? You know, when I talk to people and engage with people early in their career, whether it's in college or early career, there's always this focus around money. And I want to hit that directly. I've always thought about going back to what that finance director told me and my manager told me about negotiating. But I always think about money and getting paid is a consequence of what I do, right? It's a consequence of getting the education and building the career career. And so I'm going to get paid. I'm going to get paid doing a job, right? Somebody's going to offer money for me to do something. How much you get paid is a function of how well you do it. 
when kids are asking the question, their students and others are asking the question, they always focus on how do I get there? Even when you're in a role, there's a base level of compensation and the differentiated value of the incremental compensation or additional compensation is how well you do it. Focusing in on getting the job done, performing to the above and beyond the standard is the goal. That's where you have to live and where you have to focus. And again, going back to what that director told me as a co-op student, agree on the amount and then do the work, but do the work at an exceptional level. And that's been the charter of my career. And when you ball it back down to dollars and cents, you know, you're going to get paid for what you do and how well you're trained and all of that. But the amount that you get is a byproduct of how well you do it. And the one thing I'll add to that, and it, just because as we were talking, I was thinking about my days in banking and we are ranked, I want to say it was a five point system. So like the mm-hmm. highest levels are ranked a one, then yep. three, three, four, five. Well, five, you just weren't there. Five, you were being exited. So I just remember <laughs> somehow the other finding out the difference between what a one and a two got paid. Yeah. And that was enough motivation right there for me to be a one. <laughs> That's right. That's right. How well you do it. <laughs> right. Right. So it goes yeah. back to their ranges to all these various different areas. And I think that I agree with you. Like once you're in the role, then focus on doing it and doing it well. But I also want to make sure that people think about what are the skills, what do you need to ask for to make sure that you're successful? The other piece of it, and we touched on it earlier when I was talking about a couple of things that I asked for, you looked at the difference between the one and the two and you said, okay, I'm going to put in the work to get to one, but putting in the work to get to one is both doing the work and the perception of the work that you're doing. So you always have to manage the optics right? Because that's a part of what ends up in the discussion about issue one or two. Perception of how well you're doing it. It's not just how you're doing it. We're getting to some of the good stuff now, right? (laughs) It's been good all along, but I almost feel like a part two because listen, I'm in the field of consulting and I tell people all the time, at least once a week, that perception is reality. And we are judged not just by the work that we do by our senior leaders, but also by our clients. Yep. And we also have other stakeholders because a lot of times the work that I do, it, it may not just be the financial institution that's right. my client, but a regulator may be yep. my client. I have yeah. other parties that are my stakeholders. And yeah. a lot of times they're not seeing all the work they're seeing the report and they're making a judgment based on the, the report. And right. the level of effort needs to be reflected in that report, in that summary, in whatever amount of time you get to present before them your findings. And so perception is a big part of the puzzle. So I appreciate you raising that in. Yes, ma'am. That's a topic in and of itself. We may have to do a part two now. Do a part two. I've got some juicy stuff on that one. Well, listen, thank you, Mel. I really appreciate the conversation. And I took so many notes. Listen, sometimes when you and I just talk, Afterwards, I'm taking notes. Even if it's not on a podcast, I'm taking notes. I know that you have a wealth of knowledge and as an executive leader, you're somebody that I really admire. And so just thank you for taking the time to do the podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email financeandleadership at fticonsulting.com.